Uh, we're in the book of Nehemiah. If you're just visiting, this is your first Sunday. We have been tracking through this book. We're in Nehemiah chapter 6. So if you would, please turn there. And as you do, as uh, Matt eloquently prayed, it's been a glorious week. It's also been one of the darkest weeks, I think, for us as a country. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. And I know we just prayed for Kristen, but praying for the uh, service as well. Father, we just come to you now. And as Matt prayed earlier, our minds are swirling. We're rejoicing over the great decision made by the Supreme Court for the sanctity of life. What we mourn over the blatant depravity that's just being flaunted this past month on various fronts. Lord, we live among a sinful people. <laughs> we live in a, a country that has lost its way. And Father, we know that the solution is found solely in you and in the gospel. We pray for a revival in this land. We pray as we come to the text, even this morning, 6 of Nehemiah, chapter 6, has so much to say as to where we are at this moment. And Father, just pray that our eyes would be opened. Give us wisdom and hearts that it will act in obedience. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we're in Nehemiah 6. Several years ago, my wife and I had planned this anniversary getaway. And when we were at the check-in desk, the, the lady said, you know what, we got an opportunity for you. If you attend this one-hour non-pressured meeting, <laughs> you know exactly where this is going. We'll give you a hundred bucks and, you know, two meals out. It'll be glorious. And my wife and I looked at each other, you know, a hundred dollars. This is great. Sure, we'll do it. <laughs> well, two hours later, my arm is nearly broken from them twisting it and I'm eating Ativan, uh, we were done, right? And the old saying is, it's too good to be true, it probably is. Well, Nehemiah is made an offer, as we're gonna see in six. And it sounds pleasant at first, but Nehemiah is shrewd enough to know something seriously is wrong. Swindoll, in his book on Nehemiah writes, the, the city's main defense is just about ready. We're going to see that in six. But it's Nehemiah's defenses that are about to be tested, not Jerusalem's. Nehemiah has faced several difficulties, as we've seen already in chapters one through five. But now, it's a personal attack against Nehemiah. Oh, it was the workers in four, it was the city itself and, and one, but now the, the darts are aimed directly at good old Nehemiah. And so we're gonna see, as we look at chapter six, three waves of opposition that come. And I want you to watch, there's eight quotations in these three waves, and every time they come, they're trying to instill fear in good old Nehemiah. So let's look at the first wave, which begins in chapter six, verse one. When Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard. Notice, this isn't just one little drip. This is a major offense against Nehemiah and his band of brothers. And it said I could, that it rebuilt the wall and no breach remained in it, even though up to this time I had not 
position doors and the gates. Sambalat and Geshem sent word to me saying, come, let's have a one hour presentation over breakfast. All right. Let us set up a time to meet together in Kepharim in the plain of Ona. Now they intended to do me harm. Interesting. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am engaged in an important work. I'm unable to come down. Why would the work, you would come to a halt if I were to leave and come down to you? They contacted me four times in this way and I responded the same way each time. Now let's look at this. And first of all, we see again this, this group of enemies. This isn't the first time this lovely lot had been mentioned in the text. Chapter 2, I think verse 19, we saw this group who had come. And that time it was more of a trying to stop the whole project altogether. But now we can see the project is almost done. All, all we have left is to hang the doors. And so what are we doing? Uh, we've got to act, right? The enemy knows there is, we have very little time left and this project will be completed. And so they waste no time. And they call for this meeting and we're told it's in Kepharim on the plain. You could pronounce that, oh no, which is probably a good way to pronounce it. And the plain of, oh no, which is in the Benjamite region. It sounds innocent enough, right? I mean, their desires to, to come together, to have a dialogue, a conversation. It's, it's still within the region of Yehud, the Jewish province of the Persian Empire. They're not asking him to come up to Samaria. They're not asking him to go down to the Nebatean, the, the Arab region down in the south or over, to the, over into across the Jordan River. No, no, you stay in Yehud. This will be fine, right? The idea here is. But here's the kicker. It is on the very fringe of the Yehud province. <laughs> it's an area that would be very difficult to secure Nehemiah's safety. And one scholar writes, and I think he's dead on, a small hostile military force could have easily compromised Nehemiah's physical security if it were to travel to this region. It's dangerous, very dangerous. And trust me, Sambalat, knows full well it's dangerous it's pulling him out of the city to an area where they can target him and not only that as Nehemiah notes for me to do that it's at least a day out of my, my schedule they built the wall in 52 days I don't have time to give you a day two or possibly three to have some conference I'm too busy right, to, to do this <laughs> I had an alumni office call me uh, this past week said, hey, we need to get together. And they said, we can, when can you meet this week? I said, I'm too busy to meet this week. Sorry. They wanted money anyways, right? Uh, sorry. It's like that. Let's have a meeting. Another problem with the conference, again, that they're having is they want to do harm. And Nehemiah knows that. Notice what he says here in verse 2. Now they intended to do me harm. That's a loaded term. It means to devour to lay waste. The same Hebrew term is used of Joseph when he speaks to his brothers and said, you meant to do harm. What do they mean to do? Kill him. Nehemiah knows full well what this is about. But how? How did he know that? Kind of goes without saying, but really, how would you know, Nehemiah? Well, first of all, it's found in chapter 5. Look at the secret found in 5.15. At the end of the verse... I did not behave in this way, referring to the other former governors, 
due to my what? Fear of God. Proverbs 1. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom and ruling is justice. Wisdom in speech is discretion. Wisdom in conduct is prudence. Wisdom in evaluation is discernment. Nehemiah is walking in the fear of the Lord and not in the fear of man. And he knows. He's not there to win their approval. He's not there to have some negotiation, create some peace uh, track. No, he has no desire because his focus is on doing the things of the Lord. And that, that leads us to the second. I mean, for him to do this, again, he, he wastes time. And if they were really concerned, well, they've not assisted, or they could have at least met in Jerusalem. That would have helped Nehemiah. They're, they're not concerned. And Nehemiah is very shrewd. He's got his con- contacts. We see that earlier on in chapter four. He, he's very aware of what they are doing. Uh, and so Nehemiah, his response, and I love it. Number one, he says, I'm, I'm too busy. I don't even have time for a Zoom call. Sorry, can't do it, right? And secondly, and I, I love what he says. Did you catch this? He says, I am involved in an important work. Implication, you're not so important. <laughs> I, I got this job to do, and, and I wasn't born yesterday, and, and this is far more significant than meeting. And yet, you look at Nehemiah's response. I, I, think about this. Sambalat, Geshem, Tobiah, they, they've attacked in two. We know in chapter four, they, they sought to bring even harm to the point where the workers, the Israelite workers have to have weapons to protect themselves as they built the wall. I mean, all of this, Nehemiah is still gracious. He didn't go go fly a kite, jump in the Dead Sea. I'm I'm not coming to help you. No way. He's respectful. He is direct. And he's also consistent. Because as the text tells us, four times they come back and say, well, really, you, you need to meet with us. And every time Nehemiah gives this same response. He doesn't malign them. He doesn't publicly question their motives. He doesn't even engage in a dialogue, seek to win their approval, or offer even an alternative. In no way does Nehemiah accommodate these leaders. In dealing with those who seek to undermine our ministry or our testimony, be very careful. We need to be careful trying to gauge in dialogue, accommodating, or even attacking. I think that's why Nehemiah's actions are echoed in many ways in Paul's caution to the church at Colossae. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul writes, Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunities. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer everyone. Remember the time frame when Paul wrote, Christendom was not the flavor of the month, right? And yet he writes these words to that church. And don't you love, by the way, that Nehemiah is so focused on doing the things of the Lord? I love it. He, I mean, he is zoned in. We are going to get this wall done, and nothing is going to distract. Well, the appeal, the private appeal to Nehemiah four times does nothing. First wave of opposition, a no-go. Here's the second wave, and let's look at this starting in verse 5. The fifth time, 
Sambalat sent his messenger to me in this way. So now we've got to change our tactics. He had an open letter in his hand. It was written in it were the following. Now listen to what the letter states. Among the nations it is rumored, and I love this, and Geshem has substantiated this. Well, yeah, you're all in it together, right? That you and the Jews have intentions of revolting, and for this reason you are building the wall. Furthermore, according to these rumors, you are going to become their king. You have also established prophets to announce in Jerusalem and on your behalf that we have a king in Judah. Now the king, this is King Artaxerxes, the ruler of Persia, the Persian Empire, is going to hear about these rumors. So come on, let's talk about this. Now Nehemiah says, I sent back to him, we all are not engaged in these activities you are describing. All of this is a figment of your imagination. They were all wanting to scare us, supposing their hands would grow slack from the work and it won't get done. And so now strengthen my hand. <laughs> well, the first four notes were private. This time it's posted on Facebook. A blog has been created. An op-ad has been written in the local newspaper. And Nehemiah, there are a lot of rumors. In fact, according to this letter, it's concrete evidence, thanks to Geshem, Geshem that it's been determined. And notice the accusation. There's three. You and the Jews are seeking to revolt. You desire to be king, and you have organized and corrupted the religious body to back you. Do you catch it? Caught the pronouns, right? Second person singular. You've done this, you've done this, and you have done this. Nehemiah, this isn't going to go well for Artaxerxes. Now remember, back in Ezra's day, or in, back in the book of Ezra, we were told that when they were looking to build further the temple, all, uh, the walls, that was all ceased because the king said, nope, not going to do that. So there is a, a sense, this is very dangerous. It's a difficult predicament for Nehemiah, or it could, because if this letter gets back to Nehemiah, Sanballat could create absolute havoc for the old cupbearer of the king. Notice about this letter. Look at it carefully as it's being written. It's based upon hearsay. Did you catch that? No, no source is cited. The facts are exaggerated. I love how it starts. Did you catch this? Look what it says. And it's rumored, well, it says that sent his letter to him, and it says that you and the nations have heard this. I mean, it's all out there. The whole thing is blown way out of proportion if indeed it even occurred. You know, unlike defamation, gossip and backbiting works indirectly. It's covert. It's not by open attack, but by seeking to cause others to entertain a bad opinion about the neighbor. They, but certainly, defamation and gossip go hand in hand. I know, I've, I heard jokingly, it's been repeated, uh, I don't repeat gossip, so listen up the first time, right? You know, this idea, or don't worry, your secret's safe with me and everyone else I told have swore they won't tell anyone either, right? This idea, you know, I was doing some research on gossip. A recent study shows that we are highly influenced by gossip, even when it's clearly identified as untrue. 
Verbally marking information untrustworthy with weak qualifiers such as apparently or allegedly does little to prevent prejudgments and defamation. This is because we judge people on a strongly emotional basis, the study shows, even if we know that this judgment is based on unreliable evidence. Wow. You say it long enough, loud enough, hopefully everyone will believe. Sambalat has been working overtime. Now we're going to put this out on the open. We're gonna, this gossip mill has started, and we want people to believe it's true. You know, the tongue is undoubtedly probably one of the most dangerous instruments in our toolbox. <laughs> Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, what does he say? I'm, I'm a man of unclean thoughts. I'm a man of unclean hands. No, I'm a man of unclean lips. Right? <laughs> we as Christ followers should never be given in to gossip or defamation. It's, it isn't, it's easy to malign question motives, tear down, to criticize, or even package it as prayer request. So lovely. But it should not be among believers. Ephesians 4, let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is good for edifying as it fits the occasion that it may, listen to this, impart grace to those who hear. <laughs> Sadly, Nehemiah is the a victim of slander, of gossip. So the next time you're tempted to share something about someone, gossip, backbite, whatever, spend some time praying for them first. It's been said seldom the folks you pray for are the individuals you gossip about. <laughs> and that's probably a lot of truth to that. And let me just add this morning as we're talking about gossip. Uh, this is free this morning. You didn't pay for this part. Speech entails more, I would argue, than just what comes out of the mouth or over the phone. It comes in our social media postings. Our speech, whether via the tongue or typed on the internet, needs to be honoring to the Lord as it edifies and impart grace. I was talking to a former colleague and he said, I, I don't look at Facebook postings from my students anymore. It's too sad. <laughs> it's a world that is becoming more and po more polarized. And it's easy to find ourselves wanting just to give a tongue lashing to the far left. Yet similar to Nehemiah, we must not succumb to the level of the enemy. Right? Look at Nehemiah's response. I mean, he could have lashed out chopped off Sanballat's head right there on the spot. In fact, you notice this letter, it, the problem is, it, one, it questions Nehemiah's motives, doesn't it? His actions, his character, and, and, and perhaps you're sitting this morning, yeah, you, I know exactly how Nehemiah feels. I've been there. If you haven't, you will be. I mean, let's face it. Sanballat and company, as they come towards Nehemiah, they have no basis for their claim. It, the, the bottom line is they don't want the project done. And so we twist the truth and we throw in a bit of lies and hoping that we can destroy Nehemiah's character. It's manipulative, creating fear. And, and they know the past as well. They know they were successful back in Ezra 4 and they're hoping they'll be successful again. And we live in a world, 
<laughs> I don't need to tell you this. If you've been looking at all the news this past week, we live as aliens in a world, and it should not surprise us when the world is hostile. First John 3 told us this. We were called to stand in a world that desperately needs to hear the truth. But if I can be frank this morning, and as I've been watching the news, I had to turn it off yesterday, I find that when I'm faced with the hostility of the world, I still am surprised. Even though First John says we should be shocked, or shouldn't be. I mean, the last 24 hours have been shocking, disturbing, and I might argue very sad. It's not enough that we sidestep the real issue, and that is killing of human life, even to the point after a child is born. But we unleash havoc and hatred indicative of an uncivilized group of barbarians. This past month has placed on display the depravity of our country at a level I never thought I would see. But the text says, we should not be surprised. Nehemiah, I don't think he was surprised. He was expecting it. And, and I love Christ's words in John 16. He says, we're to take courage. Why? What does Christ tell his followers? Because I've conquered the world. Isn't that great? I know the end. I am victorious. No one overthrows. And Nehemiah understood because in chapter 5 it's clear. He goes, I fear God, not man. You, you can say all you want on the media. You, you can create a riot over here. No, my God reigns and I fear him. And I'm thankful that he is my God. And I am thankful for those who will not bend the knee to our culture and this society. Stand fast, O oh church. Raise the banner of hope and peace that is so needed in a dark world. Well, let's go back to Nehemiah because look how he does respond. Again, we are not, verse 8, engaged in these activities. He denies the accusations he interprets the motives of his opponents because he says it's, an, it's a figment, and I love this to Sambalat. He goes, of your imagination. In other words, Sambalat, you are the source of the rumors. <laughs> and you got your sidekick there to validate them, right? And in this, he breaks out in prayer. One commentator in noting this says, Sambalat's letter overlooks the fact that it's in a secret meeting with Nehemiah you know, this idea of calling Nehemiah to meet could be construed as joining in in the rebellion. It doesn't serve Sambalat well to have the meeting. Notice Nehemiah's response as well. Just in case you don't think he is affected, he is affected. This is difficult to hear. He's growing weary, and he says, and he's concerned about the other Israelites because he says in verse 9, they are all wanting to scare us that was their goal isn't that amazing they, they want us to have fear of them but we fear God right their hands will grow slack from the work and it won't get done strengthen our hands the idea here it's an idiom of our hands dropping it's often translated discouragement it was used in Ezra 4 when the edict was come from the Persian king that they needed to cease it says they grew discouraged 
And the idea here is as well. We are discouraged. We want to give up. Well, at least that could happen, and Nehemiah is very concerned. And so we see the rhetoric. And I love his prayer to the Lord. Strengthen whose hands? My hands. Nehemiah isn't some great giant of the faith that has special dispensation, talents and ability. No, he, he's a man just as you and I are who are seeking to follow after the Lord. And he says, Lord, I'm discouraged. And I, and I love that. You see that in Apostle Paul, don't you, in 2 Corinthians. Lord, I'm struggling here. And Nehemiah says the same thing. The des- desire to quit is real. He's tired of the opposition that he's hearing. And so you see this first wave, you see the second wave, and now watch the third. This is really interesting in verse 10. <clears throat> it says, I went to the house of Shemaiah. Now, notice, he went to the house. So what does that tell you? They at least know one another, right? I don't think he's there just for the baklava. There's something here, they know one another, and the text tells us he's the son of Deliah, the son of Im. We'll just call him Im, right? He was, and listen to the text, confined to his house. He has COVID. No, we don't know. Text doesn't tell us. Is he unclean? We don't know. Um, is, uh, he, has he made a vow that, that warrants that he has to stay in the home? We don't know that either. The text does not tell us. What we do know is that he is a prophet. We're going to see that coming up. Nehemiah has gone to him. Has he gone to him for uh, spiritual insight and, and just um, healing? We don't know. But notice what happens. Good old Shemaiah says, let's set up a time to meet in the house of God within the temple. Let's close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you. That's Sambalat and company. It will surely be at night. I know that, so that, that, let's go. Or they're gonna kill you. Then I replied, should a man like me run away? <laughs> Listen to Nehemiah, this is awesome. Would someone like me flee to the temple in order to save his life? I will not go. I recognize the fact that God had not sent him, for he had spoken the prophecy against me as a hired agent of Tobiah and Sambalat. He has been hired to scare me so that I would do this and thereby sin. They would thus bring reproach on me and I would be discredited. Remember, oh my God, Tobiah and Sambalat, in light of these actions of theirs. Also, Nodiah, we don't know who she is. It could be Shemaiah's wife, but the prophetess and the other prophets who are trying to scare me. Not only is opposition coming from outside, but now you have the religious, the many within the camp who are seeking to undo Nehemiah. It's coming from all sides. It doesn't surprise me because in chapter five, Nehemiah, remember, he scorches the Jewish wealthy for how they're mistreating other Jews. I can assure you there were some who didn't take that very lightly. That is not how to win friends and influence people, right? So he has, Nehemiah has undoubtedly upset some of the very wealthy and I'm sure some of the religious leaders. And we see that here. And so Nehemiah, <laughs> he, he's come to this fellow for help, and it is, it's backfired. Now, 
What is it that Shemaiah is asking Nehemiah to do? Scholars have debated. Let me give you two if you're taking notes. Many scholars argue it's a trap to bring Nehemiah into the temple, and Nehemiah is not a priest. And according to Numbers 3, other texts, this is a no-no. That, in fact, Nehemiah 3 talks about if they are not a priest and they go into the temple area unauthorized, they are to be stoned. This is forbidden. You're not allowed in. And remember Uzzah, King Uzzah, who, who crossed the line, thought he could go into the temple area? And what did God do? He struck him with leprosy. So this is clearly off limits. And so the argument is that what Shemaiah is attempting to do is bring Nehemiah in, he sinned, and now we got him where we need him. Other view is no, that doesn't make sense because Nehemiah doesn't need any safety. He's got the Persian guard with him. Uh, he doesn't seem to be scared in chapter four. And the, the argument is what, what Shemaiah is asking is for Nehemiah to commandeer the temple, to take it over politically, make it your fortress, make it your headquarters, and, and this is how you're gonna protect yourself and oversee all that's going on. Part of the argument is it says in the text to shut the doors, which would indicate these are the outer doors, not the inner doors and, uh, and so thus, it's taking over the whole precinct, the whole temple complex. If that's true, then it's an appeal to Nehemiah for power and prestige. And apparently, already, we know there needs to be social ref or, um, religious reform, and this would allow Nehemiah to accomplish this as well. Well, whichever view you take, it's clear Shemaiah is not acting in Nehemiah's best interest, is he? He's attempting to tra trap Nehemiah, to undermine him. In fact, the text says, Shemaiah says to him, let us meet. Did you catch that in the text? That's the same line Sambalat used. And if you look at the Hebrew, it's politically motivated. <laughs> Let's have a conference. Sounds familiar. Have you been talking to these guys over here? Well, we know he has. He was an agent. Tobiah, he has enormous influence among the Jews in Jerusalem. In chapter 13, we're gonna find Tobiah even has access and oversight of the storage rooms and Nehemiah boots him out. <laughs> he had had enough of Tobiah by chapter 13. There's two major flaws. One is what he's appealing to Nehemiah is dependence on his own strength, his own plan. And that is fatal. Nehemiah knows, no, I turn to the Lord. Do you notice he prays twice already in this text? Verse 9, verse 14. Nehemiah knows exactly, I'm going to go to the Lord. When you're faced with the opposition, go to the Lord first. Be careful. That's what Nehemiah does. And another major flaw is it would discredit Nehemiah with his people. One scholar writes, if Nehemiah had listened to Shemaiah's request, he would have lost, listen to this, his life, most likely, his honor, and would have jeopardized the very cause he had at the heart of this. Nehemiah understood these flaws. It became very clear that Shemaiah was an agent of, again, of Tobiah. 
And I love, again, the prayer in verse 14. Remember, it's the same prayer we see in verse 19 of chapter 5. In 519, Nehemiah says, remember me, O Lord. This time he says, remember them as well. It's not a it's not an issue of vindication or vindictiveness. It is a prayer of, Lord, it's your character, and may you remember these things and act accordingly. In other words, Sambalat's in deep trouble because Nehemiah is saying, Lord, act in accordance to who you are in dealing with these people. Well, that's the third wave. And then in verses 15 and 16, which I think are the two most glorious verses in the entire book of Nehemiah, they're often just quickly passed over. And in some Bibles, they'll even put it in the next section. But to me, it is such a great ending to verses 1 through 14. Look what verse 15 says. So the wall was completed. Don't you love it? (laughs) All you've tried, the wall's done. The 25th day of Elul, in just 52 days, when all our enemies heard, and all the nations, this time it's no rumor. You heard exactly correctly, right? That this is it. And it says, when they saw this, they were greatly disheartened. What irony. They tried to instill that Nehemiah. It is they who are frightened. They knew. Watch, catch this last line. This is what I love. And I, I, I want to spray paint it across our building when it's built. They knew, right, that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Isn't that great? <laughs> I love it. Here it is. And, and look at the response. The building is finished in record time. The, the building of the wall Everyone knows it's very clear what has happened. And again, the enemies are frightened and it's clear God has done the work. Reminds me of Rahab. Remember the spies? And they hide with her at Jericho. Remember what she says? I know the Lord is handing this land over to you. We have heard for the Lord your God is God in heaven above on earth below. My prayer in the midst of all the crud this past month, and especially in the last 24 hours, is that people will look at the church and say, that's the Lord. This is the Lord's work. This is what needs to accomplish. And you, you think about it, he's already done that. The walls have been built in record time. And what do I mean? The spiritual walls in that he granted us salvation. Ephesians 2, although you were dead in your sins in which you formerly lived, among whom all of us also formerly lived our lives. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. I've been in a lot of funerals. I've never seen a corpse get out of the coffin and say, thank you for coming to my viewing. Doesn't happen. And according to Ephesians 2, that's where we were before salvation. If you don't know Christ as your savior, you're dead in sin. You can't respond apart from God moving in your heart, as the text tells us. In verse 8, for by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. Thank goodness. It's a gift of God. And don't miss verse 10, for we are his creative work, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so we can do them. The walls around Jerusalem, 
It's a testimony to God's goodness. A transformed life, someone following after Christ, it's a testimony of God's goodness. This is what Kristen said about these uh, teens, these students coming to know Christ and noticing a difference. Despite all the schemes and treacherous plans to undermine God's people, the Lord sustained Nehemiah and his buddies. Despite the internal despair and the external opposition, God worked through his people to accomplish an amazing feat. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, your salvation is a testimony to an amazing God and all that he is doing. And so, O oh church, we need to stand fast. There's three things in your notes in the midst of opposition. Letter A there, despite the rhetoric of our enemy, we need to be ensured that our actions are God-honoring. First Peter 2 writes, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to keep away from fleshly desires that do battle against the soul and maintain good conduct among the non-Christians so that though they may malign you now as wrongdoers, they may see your deeds and glorify God when he appears. Again, if you haven't been the topic of gossip or the recipient of slander, you will, most likely, in your lifetime. I remember several years ago, a former student who I didn't have as a student lamb blasted the conservative faculty in the Bible department that I had taught at. And it was full of venom, and it was on the internet. He created a website. There's nothing you can do about it. And for years, people still pulled that sucker up. And I remember a former colleague saying, careful, because you just want to retaliate. You want to put up another website and, or write a note or whatever. He says, if you do, you're going to give validity to your accusers. Stand fast. Exalt Christ. Let the world see who it is. And as First Peter writes, they will know. We as the church have an incredible opportunity to live in such a way that when the accusations fly, and they are, albeit as loud as they're proclaimed, they have no truth. When you're struggling, remember, it wasn't just Nehemiah that was maligned or falsely accused. So was our Savior, right? And he stood fast, and he did it, why? For us, for our salvation. Second, in your notes, prayer serves as a crucial and essential part of ministry. Romans 12, do not avenge yourselves, dear friends, but give place to God's wrath. That's what Nehemiah was doing. Vengeance isn't mine, it's yours, O Lord. And remember these yahoos for your glory, for your sake. If your enemy is hungry, Roman states, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them a drink. In doing this, you will be heaping burning coals on their heads. Do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Psalm 19, let the words of my mouth or my postings on social media be acceptable in thy sight, O God. My strength and my redeemer. I love that in the midst of these three waves of opposition, again, Nehemiah is praying. And I love that the church, we're in this together, praying for one another. 
I love that the motto of this church is to love God and love others. You're doing it well. Keep it up. Praying for one another in the midst of a world that is becoming more and more hostile. It shouldn't surprise us. In fact, G. Campbell Morgan, uh, Westminster Church there in London, once stated, if you have no opposition in the place you serve, you're serving in the wrong place. (laughs) Isn't that great? And while we walk in grace, point three of the notes, in grace and humility, we also must be discerning and not to underestimate the enemy. Matthew 10, I'm sending you out like sheep surrounded by wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Nehemiah was no pansy. He knew full well what was transpiring. He was very astute, don't kid yourself. He knew all the way back in Susa what he was gonna face. That's why I think he brought some guards with him. But more than ever, as believers in this land, we must not take anything for granted. Behind what we're encountering stands ultimately the, the enemy, Satan, right? First Peter 5, be sober and alert. Your enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Strong, this is how, strong in your faith, because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world, Taiwan, Ukraine, the list goes on, are enduring the same kinds of suffering. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ with himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And then Peter writes, to him belongs the power forever. Amen. (laughs) Father, we come to you and we are so thankful. This text had been selected for this Sunday months ago, but how timely. Because there's many ways in which we resonate with Nehemiah whether it's on a personal level, whether it's as a church, whether it's the big C in this country. Lord, we just see the darts flying, and we are so grateful that there's Teflon around us, and that's Christ, who has conquered this world, and it's in Christ that we stand. And Father, stand we must. We, we, we need to be strong in our faith, So that as we stand, individuals will see there's a difference. Oh, it doesn't mean we're wallflowers. It doesn't mean we're doormats. No, it's it's, it's taking a stand in a gracious and tough love way as we point people to you. Help us to do that, oh Lord. Similar to Nehemiah, we call out and say, remember, remember, oh Lord. And that, as we looked at last week, means that we need to be faithfully serving you. Give us the strength to do that, especially in these days. In Jesus' name, amen.